How am I glutted with conceit of this? Shall I make spirits fetch me what I please? Resolve me of all ambiguities? Perform what desperate enterprise I will? I'll have them fly to India for gold. Ransack the ocean for orient pearl and search all corners of the newfound world for pleasant fruits and princely delicates. I'll have them read me strange philosophy and tell the secrets of all foreign kings. I'll have them wall all Germany with brass and make swift Rhine circle fair Wettenberg. I'll have them fill the public schools with silk wherewith the students shall be bravely clad. I'll levy soldiers with the coin they bring, and chase the Prince of Parma from our land, and reign sole king of all the provinces. Yea, stranger engines for the brunt of war than was the fiery keel at Antwerp's bridge I'll make my servile spirits to invent. Come, German Faldus, and Cornelius, and make me blessed with your sage conference. Faldus, sweet Faldus, and Cornelius, know that your words have won me at the last to practice magic and concealed arts. Yet not your words only, but mine own fantasy that will receive no object, for my head but ruminates on necromantic skill. Philosophy is odious and obscure. Both law and physic are for petty wits. Divinity is basest of the three, unpleasant, harsh, contemptible, and vile. Tis magic, magic that hath ravished me. Then, gentle friends, aid me in this attempt. And I, that have with concise syllogisms graveled the pastors of the German church, and made the flowering pride of Wertenberg swarm to my problems, as the infernal spirits, on sweet Musaeus when he came to hell, will be as cunning as Agrippa was, whose shadow made all Europe honor him. Speak the charm of me. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. This is the Arnamancy Podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. I am Reverend Derek, and you are currently listening to part three of this podcast's deep dive into Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy. If you feel lost and would like to catch up with the first two episodes of our deep dive, you can find them on the podcast's website at arnamancy.com slash Agrippa. So, welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, we will be exploring Agrippa's definition of magic, both through his words and by examining it through a modern lens. Beginning with this episode, I will make a point to let you know precise chapters we will be discussing in occult philosophy. This should give you the opportunity to read those chapters in advance so you can be more informed of the topics we discuss in the episode. Agrippa's definition of magic can be found in Book 1, Chapter 2. In the 2021 Inner Traditions edition of Occult Philosophy, translated by Eric Perdue, this chapter begins on page 18. I would like to point out that we will almost never spend an entire episode discussing just one chapter, 
But since magic is at the core of our exploration of this book, we need to spend some time understanding exactly what we are talking about. In order to build a definition of magic, especially as we explore this 16th century work, we have to take a closer look at the definitions that have shaped ours. Almost all of us will have a definition, explicit or implicit, formed not only by our own practices, but by the authors, thinkers, and teachers who have influenced us over the years. The modern definition of magic has been strongly guided by the occult revival of the late 19th century, in particular the various thinkers, writers, and magi of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. However, even the founders and early practitioners of this tradition didn't have absolute agreement. Even to them, the nature of magic seemed elusive. Let's take a look at what they had to say. Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers, or S.L. McGregor Mathers, was one of the founders of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. In the late 19th century, he was responsible for the translation and publishing of many occult and mystical texts that had been long out of print. Today, well over a century later, his translations continue to be popular. In the introduction to his translation of the sacred magic of Abramelin the Mage, Mathers provides a definition of magic. He defines magic as the science of the control of the secret forces of nature. Alistair Crowley was another member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn who went on to found a new religion and establish magical orders and secret societies that continue to thrive today. You've probably heard of him. His influence, whether you like it or not, continues to be felt. As a result, almost everybody is familiar with Crowley's definition of magic. He wrote in Magic and Theory and Practice, Magic is the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. This short and sweet definition has been subject to over a century of analysis, argument, and commentary. As we shall see shortly, its influence has been extraordinary. Do not blame yourself if Crowley's definition is the one that you know best and have found the easiest to work with. But I will warn you now, it is nowhere near Agrippa's definition. To understand occult philosophy, we will have to discard Crowley's definition altogether. Let's look at a few more definitions from the last century. Francis Israel Regardi was one of the most influential 20th century magicians, and he too was part of the Golden Dawn tradition. Initially heavily influenced by Aleister Crowley, Regardi went on to become known for his own achievements. He published a number of books on magic and the occult, and is probably most well known for making the rituals in, of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn available to the public. In his 1935 book, The Tree of Life, Rigardi restricted his definition of magic to theurgy alone. He wrote, Magic is a mnemonic system of psychology in which the almost interminable ceremonial details, the circumambulations, conjurations, and fumigations are deliberately intended for the exaltation of the imagination and the soul 
with the utter transcending of the normal plane of thought. As a side note, if you would like to understand more about theurgy and how it is differentiated from other categories of magic, check out the link in the show notes about the differences between theurgy and thaumaturgy. Of course, modern magic did not stop developing in the 1930s. Near the end of the 20th century, new paradigms emerged, among them chaos magic. Peter Carroll is one of the creators of chaos magic, and in his 1978 work, Lieber Null, he offered a definition of magic that, as you can hear, is strongly influenced by Aleister Crowley. Carroll wrote, Magic is the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. The will can only become magically effective when the mind is focused and not interfering with the will. The mind must first discipline itself to focus its entire attention on some meaningless phenomenon. If an attempt is made to focus on some form of desire, the effect is short-circuited by lust of result, egotistical identification, fear of failure, and the reciprocal desire not to achieve desire arising from our dual nature destroy the result. Therefore, when selecting topics for concentration, choose subjects of no spiritual, egotistical, intellectual, emotional, or useful significance. Meaningless things. This particular definition is the culmination of an important trend in our definitions of magic. Throughout the 20th century, magic became more and more an internal characteristic of the magician, either a psychological phenomenon or a supernatural effect caused by the magician's will, whatever that means. Spirits or daimones became less and less important in discussions of magic, frequently relegated to psychological constructs or just dismissed altogether. Though this trend of conflating magic and psychology began to be reversed in the 21st century, many practitioners, perhaps you, perhaps me, have been swayed by the temptation of one of these psychological definitions that fits so neatly into a modern materialistic worldview. But then at the same time, we are taught and continue to consult Agrippa's occult philosophy like some sort of magical encyclopedia without ever stopping to wonder if our definition of magic has any similarity to his. To understand Agrippa's definition of magic, we have to let go of the 19th and 20th centuries and go back to the 16th century. Eric Perdue's new translation of occult philosophy was just published in 2021 by Inner Traditions. Here he is, explaining Agrippa's concept of magic, but also urging us to understand the difference between magic and occult properties. So magic is where you unite uh, the natural world, the celestial world, and the divine world. 
through the consciousness of the magician. Like all of those elements have to be there. And that's why that's one of the reasons why it's divided into three books like that. That's that's a stark contrast to say X herb, you know, cures headaches. That that might be an occult cause because the reason why that plant cures the headache isn't isn't known. <laughs> I, I actually make jokes that Agrippa, you know, pretty much does say, you know, how do magnets work? He doesn't know. It's a cult. That's a cult. He's a jug he's a juggalo. You know, that that's why I make that distinction because if a plant cures a headache, you don't know why it cures a headache, it just does. And there might be, you know, because it has the property of a certain planet or, or whatever, but it's not because of, of of employing a spirit to cure the headache. That that's the difference, I think. Where, where he goes more into the ceremonies, that, that's a different story. That's magic. Studying the natural, celestial, and divine worlds is critical to understanding Agrippa's definition of magic. I suppose I could now point out that it is no coincidence that Three Books of Occult Philosophy is split into three books, one on natural, one on celestial, and one on the divine world. Huh. Maybe that means it's time to listen to Agrippa himself. In Book 1, Chapter 2 of Occult Philosophy, he wrote, Magical ability possesses great power, full of the highest mysteries, contemplating profound secret things, natures, powers, qualities, substances, and virtues, combined with the understanding of all nature. Agrippa then explains that there are three areas that are critical to magic. These are the ones that Eric Perdue just told us about. First, natural science, or the natural world, which, which teaches us about the nature of the world and how to investigate the world. Second is mathematics, corresponding to the celestial world, which teaches us of the understanding of nature's movements and celestial progressions. And then third is theology, which teaches us about the divine world. It teaches us about God, about the nature of mind. It teaches us about intelligences, angels, and demons. It teaches us about the soul. Through theology, we learn about religion and faith. We learn about the virtues of words and figures. We learn about secret operations. And finally, we learn of the mysteries of seals or sigils. Agrippa then goes on to assert, these three powerful faculties of magic natural science, mathematics, and theology, embrace, unite, and actuate. Andrew B. Watt is a well-known guest of this podcast to regular listeners. He is a skilled astrologer and magical practitioner. I asked him to give me his definition of magic, and reluctantly, he agreed. Here's what he had to say. There's a, a tool that some organizations use in order to identify what programs people fall into. And the idea is, do you always tell people what you think or do you never tell people what you think? That's one axis. And the other axis is hot tamale. Do you get super emotional about it or cool as a cucumber? And I definitely fall into the category of don't tell people what you think and cool cucumber. So I'm not going to tell you what I think about magic first. I'm going to start off with some of the things that Picatrix says 
and that Cornelius Agrippa says. And both of them say that that magic is the intersection between the three arts of natural philosophy, that is to say science, right? Studying the properties of the things of the natural world, the celestial philosophy, by which they don't mean astrology, even though I'm an astrologer, but sort of the intellectual realm of mathematics, of science, of calculation, of reason, and the theological art, the study of the gods and the realms of the spirits. They both reference the idea of the one, which is a Neoplatonic ideal, right? The idea that everything is one that we see in the opening of the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus. So magic is the intersection between natural science, intellectual reason, and theurgy, or the search or quest for God, trying to understand the theological underpinnings of the world. In Agrippa's letter to Trithemius, included at the beginning of Book 1, he is fixated on redeeming magic's reputation. He rails against cursed superstitions and wild rites, and laments those who, with their accursed frivolities, hope to be labeled with the sacred name of magic. He goes on, They have driven that which was called magic, which was formerly praised, to that which is today seen as odious, to all that is good and honest. I asked Eric Perdue about Agrippa's take on good and bad magic. One of the most major problems that they would have had to worry about, which is what made good magic and bad magic. To, to Agrippa, good magic is when you do magic knowing that God is the source and doing it for God. And bad magic is when you believe that the source of power is in nature or demons or spirits or whatever. So that so you would use demons, spirits, plants, animals, stones, whatever, knowing that the source of those things' powers come from somewhere else. In the years after occult philosophy, Agrippa's approach to magic was adopted, adapted, and changed. Giordano Bruno's essay on magic was written about 50 years after Agrippa's death. In it, Bruno opens with ten definitions for magic and magician. A few of them are particularly relevant to what we are discussing. For example, in one definition, he tries to differentiate between magic and occult philosophy. Bruno wrote, When, from the powers of antipathy and sympathy of things, that by them things are repelled, transmuted, and attracted, as are the species of magnets and similar, whose works do not reduce to the qualities of active and passive. Rather, all are referred to the spirit or soul in things. And this is properly called natural magic. When together with these are added words, incantations, rules of number and time, images, figures, seals, characters or letters, and this, too, is magic halfway between natural and extranatural or supernatural. That is properly inscribed with the label mathematical magic, and it is more fittingly ascribed with the label occult philosophy. Okay, these passages are confusing, and they take a lot of an unpacking. 
But in essence, Bruno describes natural magic much like Agrippa does. It focuses on the secrets and correspondences of the natural world, along with spirits that may reside in natural things. Bruno's definition of mathematical magic, on the other hand, seems to be a combination of Agrippa's celestial and divine magics. And this is what Bruno wants to call occult philosophy. Does he agree with Agrippa? We're going to be coming back to Giordano Bruno and his interpretation of Agrippa in a later episode. A decade or so after Bruno's On Magic, we find a peculiar definition of magic in Christopher Marlowe's The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus from 1604. In this play, we hear the titular character tell us some of the things that magic is not. He says, Philosophy is odious and obscure. Both law and physic are for petty wits. Divinity is basest of the three unpleasant, harsh, contemptible, and vile. In this short quote, we see references to all three areas of knowledge that Agrippa specified as essential to magic. In a way, it's almost a direct refutation of Agrippa. Philosophy refers to natural philosophy, or the natural world. Law and physic refers to mathematics, or the mathematical magic, the celestial world. And divinity, which Dr. Faustus describes as the basest of the three, uh, relates to theology in the divine world. And then, later in the play, Dr. Faustus draws a magic circle with divine names and using an invocation in Latin, summons Mephistopheles, who describes himself this way. I am a servant to great Lucifer and may not follow thee without his leave. No more than he commands must we perform. If the first quote is a refutation of Agrippa's definition of magic, we can see here that to Marlowe, or at least to Faustus, magic is about the supernatural summoning and conjuration of spirits. Now, this definitely falls under Agrippa's category of bad magic. If there is any conclusion we can draw from our exploration of the definition of magic, it's that many magicians, historians, and occultists have arrived at different definitions. In fact, if a podcast could give you homework, the assignment I would have for you after this episode is to begin thinking of what your own definition of magic is. Do not yet presume that you are writing this definition in stone. After all, we are just beginning our exploration of Agrippa's occult philosophy, and we should all expect to have our understanding of magic changed dramatically as we continue our journey. But if you choose to do some homework, start by writing down a couple of sentences. It's really okay if your definition of magic matches Mathers or Crowley or Agrippa or even Dr. Faustus. It is okay if your definition is strictly academic or historical. This first definition is just your starting point. Spend some time sitting with that definition, and then 
get ready to let it change and evolve as we get deeper into this book. As you sit with your definition, be ever vigilant to make sure that it does not go too far. In his 2014 essay, A Greased Pig Defining Magic, Nicholas Chapel warns us about trying to stick too much into our definition. He writes, One frequent misstep in crafting a definition of magic is that we overreach by claiming more than is reasonable. Nowhere is this more visible than in the framing of magic as a science. This tendency is problematic because magic relies upon a very different epistemology from that of contemporary science. Magic is fundamentally a subjective enterprise. It hinges upon intuition, imagination, and synchronicity rather than the measurement and interpretation of sense data. Calling magic a science may have been a convenient rhetorical strategy to give the term a veneer of respectability and to distance it from its associations with superstition in the early 20th century, when we were still riding on the high of the Industrial Revolution. But these days, it doesn't seem quite as compelling. Moreover, to claim that magic is a science muddies the waters by associating it with a methodology and a mode of inquiry that could scarcely be farther removed from the worldview of Western esotericism. I hope Nick isn't mad that I read such a large quote from his article, but I thought it was important enough that you should hear. And if you want to read uh, the whole article, it is two parts. There is a link in the show notes, and it is excellent. Finally, to wrap up this episode, here again is my friend Andrew B. Watt with another approach to defining magic for you to ponder on your quest to find a definition of your very own. So you ask me what my definition of magic is, and I think to myself, well, we hide it behind a whole lot of frippery, but magic is art. Magic is the kinds of physical objects and mental storytelling and social interactions that is in fact an art of reframing things so that people consider the world in a different way. You can go to a science museum, for example, and you can see demonstrations of pennies swirling around a, a funnel shape and watch them spinning around and around and around and watch them go down the drain. You've seen this machine at half a dozen museums, I'm sure. But it takes a special kind of brain to tell you that this is an approximation of how black holes work. There's a point in that penny's descent into the funnel where you can grab hold of the penny and take it out of the funnel and it will not immediately slip in. But there is a point beyond which you're just not going to be able to reach in far enough to grab it, and beyond which it is never going to be able to escape, even if it is hit by something else. It takes a special kind of mind to be able to combine both the physical apparatus, that is to say natural philosophy, with the storytelling component, the intellectual component, that this is a good way to teach kids a little bit about how black holes are, work and maybe get them interested in the future. There's another layer of the theological or the theurgical 
goal of being able to say, this is how God designs portals to other universes. And now you have engaged the imaginative faculty in a completely different way. That's the thing that takes it out of the realm of pure science and pure rationality into the realm of magic. And that strikes me as a really powerful threefold definition, but it means that we're, we definitely have to think a bit about it as art. It's being able to create a physical thing that obeys natural rules, being able to explain those natural rules in terms of logic, reason, mathematics, numbers, and then to be able to add an additional component which draws the mind of the person who views it hot further up and further in and connects them with higher principles and makes them go, wow, I understand the one much, much better now. That to me is magic. Many thanks to my friends in the Magic Channel on the Hermetic House of Life Discord server for their help in tracking down all of the historical definitions of magic we discussed in this episode. Thanks also to Trey Henry for his excellent portrayal of Dr. Faustus at the beginning of the episode. For a full list of credits, make sure to check out the show notes. This series of episodes about occult philosophy will most likely last until summer. My Patreon supporters are receiving each episode a week before the rest of the world, along with bonus materials such as full interviews, a glimpse at works in progress, and the opportunity to suggest further topics for this Agrippa deep dive. Recently, I posted the script for the first episode for my Patreon listeners to look at so they could see how much ad-libbing I do and how much is written in stone to begin with. If you are enjoying these episodes and want to help support their development, you can help out by sharing this podcast with a friend. Let your weird wizard buddies and witch pals know that we are on this journey and invite them to join us. And if you are feeling really, really kind and you want to contribute monetarily, you can go to arnamancy.com slash support and find a number of options. Until next time, dear listeners, keep reading books, keep being weird, and keep doing magic. Oh, and do your homework. This has been another episode of the Arnamancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnamancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Vanessa Irena, and I'm really excited to announce my new store, Sword and Scythe, where I'll be offering magical art, materia, and services beneath Mars and Saturn. You can visit the store at swordandscythe.com and be sure to sign up for the email list to receive early access to new releases.